I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. Every five minutes in Canada, a vehicle is stolen. Some are violent armed carjackings like this. From 2018 to 2022, auto theft cases tripled in Canada, costing Canadians more than a billion dollars a year. Every five minutes, a Canadian is victimized, and every five minutes, a neighborhood in our country feels less safe. The vehicles often end up in shipping containers, which then disappear overseas. It's become so common that a federally-led auto theft summit was held on Thursday that included law enforcement and border officials. Dominic LeBlanc is the Minister of Public Safety, and he joins me now. Mr. LeBlanc, thank you for being here. Um, People who've had their cars stolen not only feel violated, but they're infuriated that sometimes they can be tracked and they still can't stop them from slipping through, going through the port and ending up overseas. What do you say to Canadians who are angry and scared? Obviously, we say that we understand uh, fully that sense of fear and that frustration that people are feeling. And it's in big cities in the country, but it's also in small communities. That's why, as you noted, we thought it was important to bring together uh, law enforcement leaders from big municipal police forces, from provincial police forces, the mayors of some of the big cities where this is uh, an increasingly worrisome circumstance. We had the RCMP commissioner, the head of the Border Services Agency, a number of my cabinet colleagues, the prime minister opened the conversation um, precisely because the only way to really attack this situation, Eric, is for everybody uh, to work in a very concerted way together. Uh, There's no doubt that having an air tag identifying a stolen vehicle at a port, for example, in Montreal, um, the ability of the border services agencies to open those containers and retrieve those cars is something that we're working on. That's why we announced 28 million additional dollars to allow them to buy scanners and have more officers. But the most effective way is to stop the cars from being stolen in the community. So the sense of of fear, of insecurity, increasingly violent circumstances. Um, We need to attack that at the level of local police, provincial police. The RCMP are working in terms of the connection to organized crime, transnational organized crime. So that was the conversation last week of how can we all work very effectively and quickly together to bring these alarming numbers down. And that's the question. How quickly, for example, can you eliminate these jurisdictional roadblocks? As quickly as possible, we're hoping in the next few weeks, uh, that was the consensus of the meeting last week, that we have a detailed action plan, all of us, about what specific things we can do uh, in our own jurisdictions to remove those roadblocks and to make sure that police forces are working together with the Border Services Agency. One of the challenges, Eric, the RCMP tell me that up to 40% of the stolen vehicles are resold in Canada, so they're not exported. They're resold in Canada, many of them with fraudulent VIN numbers. They change the vehicle identification numbers. Some unsuspecting buyer can buy a car that ultimately turns out to have been stolen, a used car. Um, That's a challenge for local and provincial police. The RCMP are working, as I said, in because also we heard from police leaders that much of this is driven by organized criminal groups that use this revenue for more violent things, gun smuggling, human trafficking. Uh, So we all need to really lean in as quickly as we can uh, and look at a whole series of instruments. And that was exactly the conversation last week. And you mentioned 40 percent sold in this country, but that's 60 percent. And you know where they're going most of the for the most part, which is right through this portal in, in Montreal. 
uh, in these containers. That's the frustration, again, for people is that cars aren't small. And somehow they are fitting in these containers. Like, how soon are you going to have more agents and more scanners to stop these cars from getting away? Very quickly. The answer, in my instruction, the 28 million additional dollars the Border Services Agency will allow them to reassign and recruit new officers. There are technologies uh, that will help. But to be realistic about it, Eric, there are hundreds of thousands of containers that go through that port. uh, And... Canadian exporters selling perfectly legitimate export goods around the world uh, also need to have a port that's efficient. Mr. Polyev's simplistic solution that every single container is going to be examined uh, is absolutely unrealistic. The border services and the ports say that that's not the way to do it. The most effective way is to have increased intelligence from local and provincial police and the RCMP so the border services agency can best target the high-risk containers or goods that are leaving. 100% of the police intelligence that the Border Services Agency gets in terms of suspected stolen vehicles in container X, all of those containers are, are inspected. And I went myself to the Port of Montreal and saw examples of the stolen vehicles Uh, that were in some of the containers. But again, just so people understand the scale of the problem, local police forces have to come and retrieve those vehicles. Uh, The Border Services Agency is in possession at that point of what would be an exhibit in a criminal prosecution. So it's like evidence, if you want, in a criminal trial. So Ontario police, Toronto police, uh, other police forces need to retrieve these vehicles from the port. Um, It's a time-consuming way to do it. So the most effective way to bring these numbers down and improve community security and safety, as you noted in the introduction, is to prevent these vehicles from being stolen in the first place or catch the people very quickly before they end up in the containers and at the Port of Montreal. So we need to do all of this at the same time. And that was the conversation in Ottawa last week. It feels like a lot of this keeps coming back. Every question comes around to how long it's going to take because governments aren't always that quick at this. We're talking about perhaps stiffer penalties. How soon before we might see something that is tougher? Because the police say that the penalties in this country are akin to bike theft. And in the U.S., they're much tougher. Are you going to see some stiffer penalties and how soon? Yeah, so uh, the prime minister noted and my colleague uh, Arif Varani said that we're absolutely open to uh, criminal code amendments that would see uh, stiffer penalties in the case of repeat car thieves or a connection to organized crime uh, or the use of a weapon or violence to steal the car. Uh, many of those measures already exist in the criminal code. Uh, but if 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 that's going to be a deterrent, we're prepared to move quite quickly. Uh, and we heard police leaders suggest that we're prepared to move quite quickly in this regard. But as you noted, a criminal code amendments that work their way through Parliament and then the Senate, um, we want to do as many things as we can, as quickly as we can. And it probably starts with giving local and regional police with the RCMP and Border Services increased resources and increased personnel to prevent these vehicles from being stolen um, and apprehend in the cities where they're being stolen, the people doing it. An interesting thing we heard is vehicle manufacturers also uh, can play a role in terms of the technologies that uh, may prevent the cars from being stolen. We announced that we're banning devices that can copy uh, electronic keys, the fobs, the electronic keys for many of these cars. You could buy 
on the internet devices that are capable of copying these keys that criminals are using to steal the cars. So we've got to move in a whole series of areas as quickly as we can. When I heard the uh, auto manufacturers talk over the last few days, they seem to be suggesting the problems were at the ports or in the laws not being tough enough. I didn't see them saying that they needed to do more. Are you needing to hear more from the manufacturers? Absolutely we are. And my colleague, the transport minister, said that vehicle standards, either import standards or standards in terms of vehicle sales, uh, are something that we would look at with the manufacturers. Um, I'm not an expert in these technologies. And the challenge there, Eric, of course, is this would be new vehicles manufactured prospectively in the future. That has to be part of the solution to make everybody safer. And these vehicle manufacturers should want their customers to have increased assurance that their vehicle is less likely to be stolen. That would certainly be, if I was a car manufacturer, something that you might want to market. But that doesn't deal with the person who's got a car in his or her driveway tonight uh, and worries about it being stolen tonight or from some shopping center or a parking lot somewhere. Um, So we need to do a whole bunch of things in a concerted way with provincial and municipal partners. That's why I thought the conversations and the commitments were so encouraging. Everybody shares the sense of urgency and wants to reduce the understandable public anxiety on this issue. Um, But no one government can do it on its own. We need to do it as a group working together. And that, to me, was one of the important takeaways this week. uh, Just very quickly, uh, as public safety minister, will you take ownership of seeing to it that if a year from now we're asking questions about did this happen, did this happen, that you'll take ownership of either the success or the, the delays that occur? I'll take ownership of the federal elements of this of this plan, border services, RCMP on criminal intelligence and organized crime. The RCMP aren't patrolling the streets of Toronto or the Peel region or Montreal where these cars are being stolen. So uh, we have to that's exactly why it's important that municipal and provincial leaders made the commitments they did to work with us and us to work with them. Uh, that's the best way we're going to do it. Not one order of government, Eric, can fix this on its own. We're certainly prepared to do our part, but I'm encouraged that partners in, in big municipalities and provinces are also ready to work with us and with each other. Minister LeBlanc, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Eric. Have a great day. The United States is our closest ally, biggest trading partner, and requires constant diplomatic attention. But the prospect of a second Donald Trump presidency adds a jolt of urgency to our U.S. relations. The prime minister is resurrecting a Team Canada approach. At the same time, he's injecting provocative references to Donald Trump into the politics up here. The conservative leader doesn't want to talk about his failed Republican-style plan. What he is proposing to do is to make Canada great again. That is not what Canadians want. It's one thing to score political points off Donald Trump at home, but how will it play out with our Team Canada diplomacy south of the border? Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman, joins us now. Ambassador, let's start with uh, Team Canada. You know, diplomacy with Washington, it seems to me, is always the most important, never-ending work in progress. So what is the Prime Minister's Team Canada approach? The Team Canada approach is, is an extension of the kind of work we're always trying to do down here, which is to build broad and deep relationships across the country um, in all regions and on both sides of the aisle. 
Uh, the Team Canada approach that was announced at the Cabinet uh, retreat a couple of weeks ago in Montreal is like the Canadian overlay to that with Canadians. So what we're really trying to do over the next year um, and, and perhaps, you know, onward in perpetuity is to make sure that Americans across the country and in regions outside of Washington, D.C., understand the degree to which their prosperity, their resilience, their security, um, their ability to protect their jobs, their environment, uh, depends on strong and deep relationships with Canada. Because what we've seen over the past couple of years, certainly post-COVID, is that those relationships, if anything, are getting stronger and stronger. It's just they're not talked about enough. So that's the, the, the focus here. In an election year, do you have to prepare with a, sort of a broader array of possibilities because you could have somebody re-elected or not re-elected and somebody from another party suddenly there, you have almost a double track your message to both sides. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on the election in the White House for good reason. But it's important for Canadians to recognize that all 435 members of the House in Congress behind me are up for re-election. A third of the Senate and 11 governors are also up for re-election this year. And a lot of those relationships are as important to us when we are trying to uh, either promote issues of interest to Canada or resolve challenges that we have because sometimes they are really much more localized. And so having all those relationships in place is, is crucial to being able to do our job. I was more seized of uh, what was happening with President Biden in, in these last few days uh, heading into this interview with you because there are now more questions about his mental sharpness and his age. And I start to think we have to take even more seriously the possibility that it could be a Trump administration. Have you reached out to Trump officials to begin laying the groundwork with them? We're absolutely talking to Republicans that are advising uh, former President Trump and to um, strategists that are advising him and, of course, to his allies in Congress and at the state level. Absolutely. Trump and Trudeau already have a history, and it's not necessarily a positive one. The age-old advice to any prime minister is to not take sides. But as we heard at the beginning, um, you know, the prime minister has invoked MAGA politics and, uh, and not in a positive way with respect to, to his opposition leader and also with respect to the uh, former president. Does that make diplomacy a little more challenging? Well, you know, I guess what I would say to that is, is this. The issues that are really important for us to highlight in order to navigate um, either, as I say, Canadian priorities or to protect our interests, tend to be around economic prosperity, um, environmental security, uh, national security, national defense, um, and, and making sure that we're you know, making the most of the relationship in these areas that are very uh, local and are very important to individual Americans in their communities. And my experience, I've been here, you know, for six years, for four years as ambassador. My experience is that on those local issues, economic security, environmental security, national security, food security, you know, those are not partisan issues. Both Democrats and Republicans want to assure those things for their voters and for their constituents. And so what we do is we talk about the issues. We talk about how those um, goals of theirs are enhanced by making sure that their partnership with Canada is as strong as it can be. Have, have any Republicans or Trump officials said anything about this relationship, the Trudeau-Trump dynamic and anything that he may have been saying more recently? 
No, I have not had anyone comment on that to me. And in fact, more recently in, in discussions that I had just this week, um, we tend to focus more on the fact that under the last administration, Canada and the United States, under the Trump administration, Canada and the United States, and President Trump and Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, together with Mexico, were able to renegotiate the NAFTA, and that that was a really important success. There's a lot of people in this town that are very focused on that success and, um, you know, the achievement that was made. So, I, I, you know, we tend to focus on results. We tend to focus really on what is uh, the, the policy issues that are core to Americans and Canadians. I'll only ask you like one more question around this, just because, you know, in some respects, you're saying it's about results. It's about things like trade, but things can be personal, particularly as we discovered with with uh, Donald Trump. And some former diplomats have weighed in on this. Louise Blay quoted Newt Gingrich from uh, from 2016, saying that, you know, we hear what you're saying about our, about our guy Trump up there and uh, it doesn't play well down here. She seems to be saying, keep the rhetoric in check. Is that generally good advice, you would say, in terms of you doing the diplomacy you have to do? Well, you know, I guess I would say this. The people in the United States who support President Trump uh, support his policies. And some of those policies work well in the Canada-U.S. relationship. Some of them don't. Uh, the same thing is true of President Biden. You know, there are some policies that he has that have been difficult for us. And so we stay focused on that. Um, but people who are supporters of President Trump are not... Um, distressed by being uh, pointed out as being supporters of President Trump. They, they're proudly supporters of President Trump. It has been a, a, the case at times where it's Republicans who kind of take a wide-eyed approach and say they actually have very good feelings about Canada. Uh, do you discover that as well, that you might think uh, you're going to go into meetings in one way with Democrats versus Republicans, but you can find that you just never know where you might have some positive results? Oh, I, you know what? I couldn't agree more. So recently, um, Congress created a bipartisan and a bicameral committee. So it's House and Senate, Republican and Democrat. And it is a, a committee that is focusing on deepening and strengthening the relationship with Canada, both from an economic and a security perspective. And the interesting thing about that caucus is that it was spearheaded by Republicans. And it was the brainchild of Republicans. It now has, uh, I think, 66, 67 members. Um, and it's more or less even between Republicans and Democrats. But for the longest time, there were many more Republicans that were saying, yes, we want to focus on, on the Canadian relationship. We really are very deeply committed to it. We've got members of that committee from, you know, Tennessee and Arkansas and many from Texas and, you know, from, from very, very Republican states. And we had all of them over here to the embassy for, a, you know, a reception and a discussion. And they couldn't be more bullish on this relationship. And I don't think that should be a surprise to Canadians because ultimately Americans, regardless of the stripes, are deeply concerned about ensuring resilience in their country. Right. As I say, whether it's economic resilience, energy resilience, um, making sure that their homeland is safe and that's very much a Republican and a Democratic priority. So I, I just I think there's just a lot of common ground here for us. Uh, every uh, U.S. election year is an important one for our diplomacy in Washington. Uh, are the stakes particularly high this year? The world is really complicated right now, right? All Canadians know that the world is really complicated right now. And I think that the stakes are high with regard to making sure our most important alliances are strong 
making sure our Canadian economy is strong, making sure our people are safe, that we have what we need um, to be prosperous and, and healthy. And in that regard, yes, I would say, given that the United States is our closest ally, our most important trading partner, our most important security partner, um, making sure this relationship is as strong as it possibly can be is job one. Really appreciate your time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, for one last thing. Two years ago, Ukraine was attacked by Russia and could have fallen within days. By the first anniversary, Ukraine remarkably had turned its fortunes around. Russia was backed into four eastern provinces, and NATO was united, delivering weapons and hope to Ukraine. Now, on the eve of the war's second anniversary, the outlook is much more bleak. Ukraine is running low on troops and arms. Russia is dug in, almost immovable in those four provinces. A beleaguered President Zelensky has replaced top military figures, while Vladimir Putin looks more confident, finding a sympathetic American audience with Tucker Carlson on Elon Musk's X platform. While in Washington, Republicans are blocking military aid in this election year. It is vital that the United States Congress agrees on continued support for Ukraine in the near future. And I count on all allies to sustain their commitment. But even in Canada, interest in the war appears to be softening. A year ago, 65% of Canadians were just as concerned about the war as when it started. That concern has slipped to 58%. And while 39% of Canadians believe Ukraine should fight to drive Russia from all its lands, almost one-third support negotiation even at the price of giving up some land. The stakes are enormous. A weakened or defeated Ukraine means a stronger Russia posing a greater threat to Europe and to NATO. And that's even before Donald Trump potentially returns to the White House. The third year of the war is about to begin, and for Ukraine, it may be the hardest. To succeed, allies like Canada must stay engaged, if necessary, to spend more, even when the public cares less. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thanks for listening. The West Block will be back next Sunday.